Let's pray. We open your word, Father, and reminding ourselves that this is your word to us. This is not man's word. This is your word given to us through men. The man is the Apostle Paul. And through him, you have communicated truth to us that we need to know about yourself and about how we are to treat one another. And so we ask that you would do more than allow us just to hear, but our hearts would be stirred so that we'd be doers of the word. And we ask for this help in Christ's name. Amen. God created families. The entire concept of family comes from the mind of God. He made the man. He suited him to lead the home as a husband and as a father. He made the woman, suited her to manage the home as a wife and as a mother. Each have responsibilities to the other as well as to the children. For example, if a spouse is discouraged, the other can come alongside, offer support and encouragement. Or if the children get sick, mom and dad can work together to nurse them back to health. If a sibling needs help, the other siblings can lend a hand. Right? Now, is this all that a family does? Right? Just helping one another out? No, no, of course not. Our, our relationships can and certainly do go much further. However, caring for one another in a family is a very tangible expression of our importance to one another. God is the one who unites a husband and a wife in a covenant of marriage and then gives them responsibilities such as raising and shepherding their children. These are all relationships that God has established in which we care for one another. Now, we can all see the importance of family. We know it. However, there is another family that is also of great value to the Lord, and that's the family of God, His family. All Christians have been adopted into God's family. Paul Writes about this in Romans 8, in verse 16, he says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be also glorified with him. So every believer is a child of God, a fellow heir with Christ, And God even revealed to us that he planned his family in his mind even before the foundation of the world. He he created us and then he adopted us as his very own children. It came, however, at a price. See, in order for you and for me to be brought into God's family, his only begotten son had to die. So it took God giving his son to make us his adopted sons and daughters. Christ died to make us children of God. So Jesus understood the importance of family, but he also understood the greater importance of being part of the family of God. Look with me at Matthew 12. You can keep your finger here and just jump over to Matthew 12 as we read Jesus' words about family. In verse 48, Matthew 12, verse 
That ain't going to work. Oh, that's Mark. Sorry. Matthew 12, verse 48. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him, right? His mothers and brothers were outside and they want to speak to him. And he says, but Jesus answered and said to him and said, who is my mother? And who are my brothers, right? The ones standing outside. But then he says, but who are they? And then stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, Jesus here is not trying to say that our biological families are not important. Rather, he's making it clear that following him is far greater. He takes priority. His kingdom takes priority. And all who follow him are counted as his family. See, because you are his sister, his brother, his mother, he will care for you. But there is another equally important implication for each of us here. We are family too. You are my sister, my brother, my mother. And I will care for you. And you for me. And each of us for one another. See, this is the essence then of Paul's words as he ends his letter to the Corinthians. Each of you are members of God's family. And God's family cares for one another. That's the main point of these last 10 verses here of 1 Corinthians. God's family cares for one another. Follow along with me as I read beginning in verse 15. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, and they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. I urge you that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prissa greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house, all the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. My title here is Caring for Your Family in Christ. Caring for your family in Christ. Did did your parents growing up, did they ever try to get you to interact with your siblings so that you would become friends and, and treat each other a little bit better? I know we did this with our children, right? Every parent is grieved when they, they see their, their children treating one another with indifference and sometimes even that which seems to be hatred more than anything else. But it's equally grieving when siblings just don't care for one another, don't care about each other, refuse to go out of their way, just show basic 
concern and kindness and care. I remember watching Paul Tripp some one time when he was looking at his kids. He goes, I would love for them just to care one twit for each other. Do you think your heavenly father is any less grieved when we do the same with our brothers and sisters in Christ? I want to highlight seven ways that we can care for each other as family in the Lord. These are not seven ways that others should be caring for you. These are seven ways that we should be caring for each other. So that means you are not to wait around for others to treat you this way. But out of love for Christ, out of obedience to Christ, you are to get busy caring for your family in Christ. And Paul gives us seven ways to do it. All right, are you, are you ready to hear about each of these ways? Are you ready to resist the temptation to judge your brothers and sisters in Christ by these seven ways and instead own them? Own them as what God expects of you as one of His children. You'll do them regardless of whether or not they are done for you. Are you ready to receive it that way? Because that's the only way you should receive it. And if in, if in your thoughts, your thoughts go astray, well, I'm not treated this way, you've already missed out. You have missed out on what God is doing here this morning. He's talking to you. He's talking to all of us. The well-being of God's family is very important to our Heavenly Father, and therefore, it should be very important to us also. First, the first way is you need to devote yourself to serving each other. Devote yourself to serving each other. In verse, Paul, in verse 15 here, he mentions the household of Stephanus as being the first converts in Achaia. Uh, Paul refers to them as the first fruits of Achaia. And so it was their conversion that essentially marked the starting point of the church in Corinth. Achaia was the name that was given to the Roman province in Greece where, where Corinth was was located. So that's what he's referring to here. So for this reason, we can understand how Stephanus and those of his household would be especially dear to Paul. However, I would say that, that what caused Paul to love them even more was how they shared the same love that he had for the church. And that love was apparently well known by all those, this love of Stephanus and his household. It was well known by all those that Paul is writing to in the church. He says, you know that they have devoted themselves for the ministry to the saints. You know this. I just have to mention the name Stephanus. And you're like, I love that dude. I love his whole family. That would be the response that they had when you mentioned this guy's name. They were, he says, they were devoted. The word devoted there, it means to set in order. Uh, we see it used in Romans 13, in verse 1, the passage about the government, right? Paul says that governments, he says, they are established by God. And that's the word, the same word for devoted here. God, and remember that word means set in order. So God set the governments of the world in order. Same word is used in in. Acts 13, verse 8, about everyone who believes in Christ as having been appointed to eternal life. See, in the same way that God established the governments, 
He also appointed men and women to eternal life. See, God is the one who is doing the establishing. He's the one who's doing the appointing. So Paul uses that word to describe Stephanus' heart toward the saints. He devoted himself to, he established himself, he appointed himself for ministry to the saints. No one needed to ask Stephanus to serve. No one needed to assign him to ministering to believers in any certain capacity. The desire to help meet the needs that he saw amongst the saints, it was self-motivated. It was, he was self-assigned and he self-pursued it. MacArthur notes in his commentary how in the KJV, in the King James, they translate this word for devoted in quite expressively with the word addicted. Stephanus and those of his household got themselves addicted to the ministry of the saints. Now, we know that that term is going to have negative connotations because of its association with with drugs like heroin or cocaine or meth and how addictive they are. That's not Paul's suggestion at all here with this word. Paul understood the devotion of Stephanus and those of his household to the Lord's work because he was addicted also to this kind of love. And Paul defines life. He defines life in terms of service to Christ. In 1 Corinthians, just a little ways back, verse 58 of chapter 15, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil, in the, is, your toil is not in vain in the Lord. When he wrote to the Philippians, he said, If I am to live on in the flesh, well, this will mean fruitful labor for me. That's just, life means fruitful labor. He writes about himself. He writes about the other apostles in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Why would, why would Paul say such things? Or maybe what you're thinking is, how could Paul say such things? Is, is he operating on some higher level? Of spirituality, I mean, he's he's an apostle. Is that some, you know, place you haven't reached yet? Is that why I don't feel this way? Is this some way of thinking that you will arrive at someday, but but maybe you're just not there yet, friends? This attitude that your life should be devoted to serving others—it is basic to Christianity. It is Christianity one hundred and one. It is not some higher type of Christian living. It is where you begin. Jesus made some things very clear to all those who would choose to follow him. Just listen to these words again in light of serving one another. Think of the things that often rise up in resistance to that idea. Or it doesn't even come into your mind because you're so consumed with yourself. Your needs, your wants, your desires, your pleasures that you want to use your time and your resources to fulfill. And yet Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross and follow me. To follow Christ is to give up your life for his sake. He said, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
And perhaps you're thinking, wait, wait, wait. Isn't, isn't Jesus talking about dying for him? Right? If it comes to that, I'll die for him. I'll die for Jesus. That's all he's talking about here. Let me put it this way. If you are unwilling to die to yourself in smaller ways, like giving of your time and your money and your efforts to serve someone else, what makes you think that you're going to die for him in the ultimate way? Jesus is not asking of us something that he himself was unwilling to do. It says for, he says it this way, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, right? It it highlights who he is. He's the Son of Man, and even he didn't come to be served. The Son of Man came to serve others. It was his purpose for coming. And that means he went about meeting practical needs. He fed those who would get hungry again. He healed those who would one day die. He washed feet that would just get dirty again. And then he said, to John, he said in John 13, he said, for I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. And yes, that, that service went right up to the ultimate sacrifice. It says he gave his life a ransom for many. That was the ultimate service that he rendered to us. I'm looking around here and I'm thinking, he hasn't asked you to do that yet, right? Because you're all sitting here. You're not in some jail awaiting execution. You're not being dragged out of your home and, and beaten to death or anything like that. It's not happening yet, so he hasn't asked that of you yet. But he has given you many opportunities, other ways to die to yourself and to follow him. Far lesser ways he has. So go and do as God did, as Jesus did. So what are some ways like Stephanus, like Paul, like Jesus, that we can start devoting ourselves to serving one another? I think that would be a great opportunity just to open it up and we could all talk out loud. But let me just give you three, okay? And then you can take this offline. You can talk about this. It'd be a good topic to talk about, ways that we can devote ourselves to serving one another. You can, first of all, serve where needed. You can serve where needed. When a need is announced, when an opportunity to serve is mentioned, don't just leave that for someone else to meet it. Take note of the need. Ask yourself, can I help meet this need? Can I help meet this need? Now, if you determine that you can't schedule conflict, inability, you've got physical issues, whatever it might be, and you determine, no, I, I really can't help meet this need. Well, maybe you can free up others to help meet that need. There's also simple times where the need is obvious, and you can just jump in and help, right? Here's one, okay? Uh, this will be great. You have to have a chance to apply it tonight. Our potlucks. Our times. This is just for our church here, right? This is just us. We know how those potlucks work. All the food's set out. It's great. We all come through. We eat. We get full. We talk. And like, hey, all right. Well, I got to get going. See you later. And then somehow, whoever it happens, oh man, I'm left behind. I talk too long. Now I got to clean up. You know, somehow every week, all those things get cleaned up. 
All those tables get put away. The vacuuming gets done. Tables get wiped. You know, somehow that happens every week. You know what? Many times it's the same people doing it every week. That's an obvious need that no one's going to say, hey, you stick around and keep it. Why don't you just stick around? It's an obvious need. Help meet it. Be one of them. The question is not, will the cleaning get done? Or will the need get met? It will. Because these are things that people who are willing to serve will do. But they're also doing all kinds of other things too. The question is, is will you be one of those who serve where needed? You know what I'd love to see? Too many people in there. I'm sorry, we just don't have anything left for you to do. What a wonderful thing to say. And I know you're thinking about that in your homes, parents, and I'm going to get to that in just a second. What's another way that we can serve one another and care for one another? Here's a good one. Intentionally pray with someone. Intentionally pray with someone. Ephesians 16 says, With all prayer and petition, at pray at all times in the Spirit. With this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So when someone shares a burden with you in a conversation, some type of a need is expressed. First, take time to listen. Really hear what they're saying. Dialogue with them. Interact with them. Ask them questions about that need so you get a full understanding of what that need is. And you may find in the midst of that that there's some obvious need that you can serve. I can help in some way. I can bring a meal. I can this or that. There might be something there. You can actually help meet the need. But before you break away, Say, you know what? I'm going to pray for this need starting right now. Can we pray right now? Can we just step aside here and pray? And then pray with them. You can always offer that right there. In fact, I would urge you to do that because if you say, I'm going to pray for you and walk away and forget, you've just lied to them. That's a great way to not lie. I'm going to pray for you. In fact, I'm going to do it right now so I don't forget. And then do it. Now, here, let me just encourage you who are younger, right? And you happen to hear of something, an adult. I I know that there's that dynamic of, well, I don't feel like I can pray for an older person or I'm only 16 and they're 32 and they happen to mention this need and I don't feel like I can pray for them. Yes, you can. (laughs) What a wonderful thing to see someone who's young, right, in their life and in their walk with God say, well, can I pray for that right now? You know what they're not going to do? They're not going to laugh at you. They're not going to say, you pray for me. They're going to go like, that would be awesome. I would love that. So what a great way to apply this. Now that leads me in to one of those ways that, again, you might be thinking, well, in this topic, I'm only talking to the grown-ups. No. Here's a, here's a third one, a good one. You can help your family. Help your family. Right? You may be young. But that does not exempt you from obeying what the Lord says, especially in verses like Romans 12.10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. You know what? That, can be, that includes the people in your home under the same roof where you can do this. Start having the mindset of Christ today. Shock your parents. Do the dishes without being asked. No, I received no endorsements for that public service announcement. Ask your parents if there's anything you can do to help. And here you're sitting there going, wow, I will so not do that. 
I would never have time to do the things that I want to do because they're going to have one thing after another for me to do. I get it. I was a teenager once. This is the expected response of teenagers. No way I'm going to ask my parents, is there anything I can do to help? You find yourself thinking that you can profess Christ. You can be baptized in his name. But you really don't have to get serious about the Lord until you get older. You can fly under the radar. No one will pay attention. Let me remind you, let me remind you in love that professing Christ does not mean you actually possess Christ. Christ transforms all who he saves. No exceptions. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. And the old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. See, all who are saved have had their sinful hearts overhauled by the Spirit of God, regardless of how old or how young they may be. And with salvation comes the desire, the willingness to reject godless ways and worldly desires that once controlled and consumed you. And He frees you from sinful, selfish thoughts and desires that once controlled you. doesn't mean you still don't have them, but guess what? You've been set free from them controlling you. You can now live self-controlled, upright, godly lives right now, not someday when you're older. You've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So after mentioning the household of Stephanus and their devotion to ministering to the saints, he, he says then in verse 16, he says, Be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. Let me give you another way that you can care for your family in Christ. And that is to submit to those who labor faithfully. Submit to those who labor faithfully. Now, the word here, be in subjection, it's different from the, it's a different form of the verb be devoted that he just said in verse 15. So, same family. The word comes from the same family. So, he's Paul, he's playing with the words in order to say, Stephanus and his household devoted themselves to serving and you are to be subject to those who are faithfully doing the Lord's work. They're devoted to serving and you subject, which is another way of saying be devoted to them because what they're doing, they're serving everyone. Willingly place yourself under the instruction and the encouragement of those who are devoted to serving others, not only because they're worthy of respect, but so that you will learn to follow their example. You know, a key theme of your life as a spirit-filled believer is submission. All of us submit to one another, Ephesians 5.21. Wives are to submit to their husbands, Ephesians 5.22. Younger men are, submit, are to submit to older men, 1 Peter 5. Children are to submit to their parents, Ephesians 6. And we all are to submit to the government, Romans 13 
And there's others that we could list. Those are a good smattering of them. See, when it comes to submission, God is, God is not as concerned with who you are over as much as who you are under. And Paul is admonishing them. He's admonishing us. Find those who are devoted to serving the Lord and make them your pattern for how you live your life. And as you submit yourself, you're going to learn. You're going to grow. You're going to mature to become one that others then can learn from. Right? The author of Hebrews 13, he says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the results of their conduct and imitate their faith. And you can see that this this corresponds very closely to discipleship. Discipleship is not just about imparting knowledge about God in the Bible. Discipleship is about imitation. And Paul is telling you who to submit yourself to. One who faithfully portrays and proclaims the word of God, which should include those who help in the work and the labor of ministry. Next, to care for your family in Christ. You need to offer companionship to others. Offer companionship to others. Look at verse 17. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. See, Paul had ministered to these men through the gospel, and so they submitted themselves to Paul. They followed his example, and in turn, they were able to meet his needs. Do you ever wonder, thinking about these guys, do you think they, they kind of struggle with the idea of, you know, what do we have to offer Paul? You know, everyone needs to know that they're not alone. Everyone needs companionship. Everyone needs friends who come alongside them when times are difficult and remind them of what's true and that they are seen, and that they are not forgotten. And sometimes we we don't even know how discouraged we are until someone comes along who's, who's willing just to be there with us. We all need friends. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 17. And these men, they came to Paul, and they offered him their companionship. And as a result, Paul says... Man, that felt good. They refreshed my spirit. The word refreshed, it's the same word that Jesus used when he said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the word. So their companionship, it lightened some of the burdens that he carried as an apostle. See, God often comforts us primarily in most frequently through his word as we pick it up and as we read it in our midst of stress and sorrow and despair. But you know what he also does? He sends someone to you to comfort you through the word. So you are a vital part of God's comfort ministry when you make others and their needs a priority and you build relationships where you can sense that there's trouble here, there's tension, there's burden And you come alongside. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, 6, Paul does, but God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Timothy. 
he links Timothy's coming to him with God's comforting ministry. But not only was Paul's spirit refreshed, notice he says also the Corinthians' spirit was refreshed. They have refreshed my spirit and yours, he says. See, we should care that much about each other that that when a brother or a sister is in need, we feel burdened. We don't don't go, gosh, I hope somebody helps them. We go, I I need to help. I need to help. Because what concerns them concerns me. Paul told the church in Rome, in Romans 15, he says, now we who are strong, we ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. We're to take on each other's burdens, each other's weaknesses, such that when their burden is lightened and they are refreshed in their spirit, so, so are we. So are we. This is the type of companionship we all need and what we should be offering to each other because that's what God's family does. It cares for one another. Fourth, Paul calls us to appreciate the worth of faithful servants. Appreciate the worth of faithful servants. So he's still speaking about these guys, these three guys. And he says at the end of verse 18, he says, acknowledge such men. And by acknowledge, he means see them for, wo- for who they really are. He used the same word when he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14 back there. He says, recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. That word recognize. He says, when you hear my words, you are hearing the Lord's commands. When you see these men, see them as servants of Christ who care for God's family. See them for what they are. Or to see those who devote themselves to serving others as worth their weight in gold because they look out for the interests of others. They are devoted to meeting the needs of their brothers and their sisters in the Lord. And the church had nearly been torn apart, right, by those who were doing the exact opposite, looking out for themselves, not for others. So many in the church were inclined to criticize and marginalize others. Why? Pride, arrogance, They even fought over who's the best teacher. I'm of Paul. (laughs) I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Christ. Now they're all looking at each other. All out of pride. It's ridiculous. They're all good. But they were too busy arguing to remember that. They lacked respect for Paul. They disregarded his corrections. They questioned his authority to teach them. And then there are these three men, Fortunatus, Stephanus, Achaicus. And they just put their heads down and started serving all those in the church. All while this is going on. And I know what my responsibility is. I know what I need to be about. I need to be serving my brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul can appreciate these men all the more because they each serve as examples for the rest of the church that he can now, he can now point to and say, what they're doing. They were models of what Paul indirectly called the church to when he said in in chapter 13, right? The love chapter, when he said in verse 5, love does not seek its own. 
They emulated his own example that he mentions in chapter 9. He says, for, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win all the more. See, these men were not seeking appreciation. Their humility before the Lord is what causes them to serve others so willingly. And even though they don't desire it, God says, acknowledge them. See them for who they are. Their example is that needful. Paul told something very similar to the Thessalonians. He said in chapter 5, he says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And these are often the kind of men who get raised up to lead the church as elders. And the rest of the church is to submit to them in respect and honor and love. Just as they are accountable to God for their leadership, the church is accountable to God for submitting to and respecting that leadership. Hebrews 13, 17 reminds us, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Perhaps one of the best ways that you can appreciate such faithful servants is just simply follow their godly example. A fifth way that you can care for your family in Christ is practice hospitality regularly. Practice hospitality regularly. In verse 19, look there, it says, The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prissa greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. So these are genuine sentiments from other believers and other churches. They genuinely desire their well-being in the Lord. And these sentiments, they, they come from the fruit of Paul's teaching there in Ephesus where he's at writing this letter and preaching there. It produced a love for their fellow believers all the way over in Corinth, even though they'd never met them. And even though they were of a different culture, Ephesus was Asia, Corinth was Greece. Such a hospitable spirit is the work of God's spirit in the heart of all believers. Aquila and Prissa had lived in Corinth when Paul first came there. He stayed in their house. And then when he was done ministering in Corinth, he went over to Ephesus and they decided to go with him. And they were the ones who later befriended Apollos. They further instructed him accurately about the way of God and then they, they helped him to get back over so that he could go over and minister to the Corinthians. And over with Paul, they used their home even to help establish the church there in Ephesus. See, hospitality was such a vital part of how the church grew in its early years. And as you read through the account in Acts, we see often that the homes of believers were used for ministry. Believers ate together in their homes. They gathered in homes to hear preaching and teaching. They evangelized from their homes. They worshipped in their homes. They persuaded Jews concerning Jesus from the scriptures in their homes. And then, again, as Paul mentions here, churches gathered in homes. See, hospitality was second nature to the Christians in the early church. It was a natural product of their love for Christ and for all who belonged to him. And here we are over 2,000 years later, and the same spirit who never changes is at work in us in the same way to have the same effect. In Romans 12, as Paul enumerates, right, the many ways... Um, our renewed minds will prove that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. 
He expounds on ways to show love to one another. That's part of how we're renewed in our minds, to show love towards one another. And he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And then in that list that follows, he says, practicing hospitality. The author of Hebrews, he also shows hospitality as the fruit of Christ's love in the believer. He says, let, in Hebrews 13, he says, let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. He goes so far, Paul does, as to say, if a man is not hospitable, he is not qualified to be an elder. Don't don't even think about it. He lacks an essential love and care and compassion that is basic to the Christian. And all he will do is discourage and damage your church if you raise that man up to be an elder. He's got to be practicing hospitality. Hospitality is linked to our homes and and using them as a means of showing the love of Christ to others. And so if God has blessed you with a home, use it. Use it to show kindness and generosity, care to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Gather around. Got to have food, my friends. Got to have food. Doesn't have to be a full meal, though. Here's the cool part. You may be on a tight, budget. We live in California. Gather around cake and coffee, pie, pudding. Man, pudding pudding is not elevated to the level it should be. You can really do some great things with pudding. Gather around that and fellowship with one another. Build genuine relationships. The home is a natural place for this, but it is not required. Okay? You may not have a home that does well for entertaining guests. And there are a variety of reasons why your home may not be well suited to invite others. And if that's your situation, don't let that stop you from obeying this command and practicing hospitality. You can share a meal together at a restaurant. You can offer to bring a meal over. Hey, my husband and I would love to come over and bring you a meal, and eat it with you at your house. How about that? I mean, go for it. Why not? It's in love. You can meet at a park and have a picnic, play date with the kids and stuff like that. You can go to a cafe, coffee and, and whatever there at the cafe, and you can meet there. You can go for a walk together, a hike together, go to a beach together. These are all things that you can initiate And it's in hospitality because hospitality is not your home. Hospitality is your heart wanting a relationship with another believer to deepen it. It's a love for someone who's a stranger to you and you want to get to know them more. That's what hospitality is. The home is the natural place that this took place, but it's not the only place that this takes place. The goal is to communicate love, build genuine relationship where we care for one another and we encourage one another. So we need to be doing this regularly. Because that's what God's family does. It cares for one another. Six, cultivate and express affection for one another. It says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, that was, that was a form of greeting of men to men and women to women that was appropriate for that culture and that time. In our time, it's essentially the equivalent of a, of a hearty handshake or, a, or a, a hug around the shoulder or something like that. That's, that's what we're talking about. And so, what a great way to show that what they did was the church... River, every tribe, tongue, and nation, right? And so this was an opportunity. It didn't, regard, it didn't matter what your social standing was, your race, your nationality, your gender. You know, 
I'm going to greet you because you're my brother in Christ. Right? And that's the idea. So these things are things that we should be doing. Now, there are many challenges to our fellowship and to our unity. And if you've attended our services more than once, you, you know that we take a few moments before the sermon to greet one another. And that can be uncomfortable for some. They'd rather not do that. In fact, I even had one brother who in the past told me, you know, when that last song was coming to a close, I would, I would exit out the back so I didn't have to be a part of that. Too much anxiety associated with it. So I recognize that for some, greeting one another might be a challenge to one degree or another. And if that is the case for you, I would ask you to see it through the lens of Scripture. If God encourages us to greet one another, well, it must matter. It must make a difference. Greeting one another warmly, it helps remove the formality that does not help, but actually hurts the type of relationships that we need to have to live for God in this world. So we need to genuinely love one another. We should make it a priority to cultivate an affection for one another that will help us to stand firm together in the faith. And then lastly, the way that you can care for your family in Christ is to foster tender affection for Christ in each other. He says in verse 21, this greeting is in my own hand. Paul, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. You know, love for each other is vital. But love for Christ is even more vital. To lack love for Christ is to reveal your lostness. In Paul's words, you are a curse. You are devoted to destruction if you do not love the Lord. You have rejected that which is most good, most beautiful, most gracious, most generous, most compassionate, most glorious, most merciful. And if you do not love Jesus, I would urge you not to rest until you see that you can put your full hope and your full trust in him. He is not an idea. He is not a philosophy. He is not a religion. Scripture names him, calls him the bread of life, the bread of heaven, the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, the lamb of God the light of the world, the man of sorrows, the morning star, the prince of peace, the righteous one, the savior, the word, the way, the truth, the life, the author of life, the almighty, the Lord of glory. And each of these names, they convey who he is and why only those who do not love him are blind to truth and goodness and beauty. The greatest thing that we can do for one another is to encourage a greater love for Christ in each other. And the more you love Christ, the closer you're going to follow him wherever he leads. And the more you trust him through every trial he allows and the more you will care for the ones that he loves. Love is not based on an emotion. So if you're sitting there waiting, well, I just got to work up feelings for Jesus and then I'll get busy. Love is a verb. We studied this. Chapter 13. It's not a feeling. It leads to actions that align with all that Paul said about love. Do you know that you can love people without feeling affection for them? My wife does it all the time. No. She likes me. She tells me that too. You love people 
who are your enemies even. That's the power of Christ. That's why Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so giving one another reasons to love Christ more is helping them to obey the Lord even when it's difficult, even when it requires sacrifice, things which the Lord says he never forgets. He always rewards. So these are the things that we do for one another out of care, right? We devote ourselves to serving each other. We submit to those who labor faithfully. We offer our companionship to others. We appreciate the word, uh, the, we appreciate the worth of faithful servants. We practice hospitality regularly. We cultivate and express affection for one another. And we foster tender affection for Christ in each other. And why would we take our time and our money and our effort to do all this for someone else? Because God's family cares for one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to remind us of your great love for us and the example that you have given us in Jesus, who even when we were hopeless and helpless and far from God, cursing his name and wanting nothing to do with him, he died for us. That's how you demonstrated your love. You sent your son to do that for your enemies. Overhaul our hearts again, Spirit of God, that we would want to obey you out of love and love others out of obedience. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.